You have now tapped in with the introspective father and son duo. Last name may be strange, but never strange to the game. Adjust the listening devices and keep it live. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, coming in, yeah. Flex, I just wanna win, yeah. LABB, who we running with, yeah. Two, two, three, three, I'm on 10 again, yeah. State your name. Hello and welcome to another installment of No Strangers to the Game. Today's episode is entitled New School, the Impact of College Athletics. Uh, today we're going to be discussing the impact of college athletics on our lives from the recruitment process to our experiences, you know, being college athletes, as well as the impact of college athletics on, you know, the university that it's, you know, a part of, as well as the surrounding town, if it is, you know, a more of a, considered more of a college town. Um, so I wanted to start today with asking you or really just you giving your experience from the recruitment process and a little bit about your you know time and your experience as a student athlete wow to try to chop all that up and break it down that's gonna be challenging but i'll do the best i can because i can talk about this all day um initially when i left high school i did get recruited um, but i went to a junior college college of the desert and I played two seasons there and I was recruited um, by a few schools, ended up uh, electing to go to the University of Idaho in which I played there for a season. The recruitment process was pretty straightforward, at least for me. You had coaches that would come, they'd see your game and they'd talk to you after the game and tell you what they thought. And those that were really interested you know, they would follow up with a phone call and say, hey, we want you to come visit the campus. So that year when I was recruited, I took actually two recruitment trips and I took them in the same week. Um, first, I went to the University of Pacific and uh, I was there and I, uh, through the basketball game, they had this big basketball game. My um, host was um, Daryl Hobbs. He was a former um, NFL player with the Raiders. He was a receiver. And um, I had a good time, but I really wasn't a fan of Stockton. And so um, when I took my recruitment trip to Idaho, you know, I didn't really see much because it was during the week um, because I went that Friday to Pacific. And then from Pacific, I think that Sunday, I flew into Idaho. And then that's when um, I got a chance to visit. So it wasn't a hot lot going on at that time. What really made me select Idaho was that the coach who was recruiting me made a home visit. So a week or two later, he came down to, to Indio and um, he made a home visit and he said, hey, we want you to come. And that's really how I might made my decision. It was partly like, okay, they really want me to party. And I got this big brother standing in front of me, like, you know, you, you, you know like, <laughs> I need you to sign this. So um, that was my process. Um, it was short and succinct, but that's how I made my decision to go there. I had other schools that were interested had I waited a little longer, I might have gotten other opportunities. I know the University of Illinois had interest in Rutgers, but they didn't, you know, lay out the carpet and they didn't, you know, say, hey, I want you to come visit. So I made my decision. May have been early, but, you know, that's how I did it. Explain a little bit about your recruitment process and, you know, your experience. Yeah, uh, mine was obvious. I mean, I guess I've technically been recruited three times now. Um, having transferred twice so but coming out of high school track and field recruiting is a lot different I think you know it's obviously because track is such a numbers based sport either you have the numbers 
for certain schools or you kind of don't. Um, there's leeway within them, of course, for, hey, you great academics, so you could take you, yeah, but, but you know, it's with it being such a numbers-based sports, you kind of know where you stand most of the time. Um, so going into senior year, I had jumped, you know, 47 feet, which is a decent high school mark, uh, but wasn't getting a ton of attention from really anybody besides maybe some D2, D3 schools. Um, during the senior year, stayed consistently, you know, jumping around that mark and got, I guess, I guess a bit more interest from some of those schools, you know, even more. Um, and, but really no, no, nothing D Division One until later in the season, Sacramento State came into the picture and just showed interest. Um, and so I took a visit to Sacramento State. I'm not sure exactly when in the season, but it was during the track season. Um, so that was a good time. I, you know, I really enjoyed Sacramento State when I was up there, the area, the team, um, everything, you know, their facilities are, are still to this day top notch and they were back then as well. So that was something that impressed me. Um, but no offers on the table from anybody at that point. I had just taken a visit. Um, later in the season, um, I was able to jump a what at the time, I mean, a school record. I had that already, but um, our league record and, you know, really placed me one of the top guys in the nation in the triple jump. Um, and so uh, my, I guess my recruitment picked up slightly in terms of the schools that were interested, got more interested. Um, Sac State gave me a very small offer, but nonetheless, it was an offer. Um, and then a few other schools reached out, but nothing else really came of it. So I guess kind of as the season ended, I was sitting there, I jumped pretty good. Um, and, and looking back on it, maybe same thing, if I had waited a little while, maybe some other schools would have got interested because I, as I've gone through the process, I realized how late uh, track and field recruiting kind of happens, how late in the calendar year it happens. But um, nonetheless, I, I signed to go to Sacramento State um, for a very small scholarship. And yeah, that was kind of how it went out of high school. You know what I mean? I think. Like I said, looking back, maybe I would do things different, but I don't think either me nor you really understood how track and field recruiting worked. Right. Um, and so we were just kind of going along and seeing, trying to figure it out. All right, you said you was recruited three times, you know. So explain that in terms of the other two times. The first time was Sacramento State where you chose to go there. Explain the other two. Yeah, so after my sophomore year at Sacramento State, I did a lot uh, of great things there, you know what I mean? School record, I was a Big Sky champion once. Um, we had been a team Big Sky championship my freshman year. Um, I had made the regional meet, you know, both freshman and sophomore year outdoors. Um, so I did, you know, really, really well. And so I was looking for a scholarship increase there and their scholarship, I guess, allotment for track and field is pretty small. So things just kind of got like, I wanted to at least explore my options. Um, and so that's how that went. And the coaching staff was somewhat resistant at first, but finally said, okay, fine, you go ahead and do it. Um, they ended up being let go of later in the picture. But at that point I was just like, okay, I'm gonna reach out to schools to see where, where I'm at, where what kind of offers I can get, or at least see what my worth is on the market in track and field because like we said, coming out of high school, I didn't know much. I had learned some things being there, but you know, you don't know until you put it out there and see. And so reached out to a ton of schools in the Pac-12 because I was thinking I wanted to stay on the West Coast. Um, but a friend of mine said, hey, reach out to a couple of these other schools. I know, you know, they knew the coaches or what have you um, and knew that they had some scholarships left over. So I reached out to Purdue specifically and a few other schools. Um, heard back from those coaches and 
I guess that time it was different because, you know, that was a bigger school. Um, and so they, they were able to offer me a really, a really good scholarship to where I would have been paying really nothing for school, just kind of chipping in on housing, really. Um, so second time around, we ended up taking that offer. And, you know, I think that was a great, great move. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'd like to kind of di digress a little into the, the, the challenge we had with <laughs> you and I. And I had to force you into, you know, reaching out to your coach to have that conversation. I know at the time you were a little reluctant. And I could understand that being a young man, having to go to your coach and say, look, uh, I think I'm worth some more money and uh, I need you to give me some. And I know going back and forth, we would talk about it and I could tell you were reluctant. I think part of it was because you had your friends there. And so you had, you know, gotten comfortable. And um, so so kind of explain that a little bit in terms of how, how you felt and what did you learn from that? Yeah, so in high school, like we said, I, I wasn't, I was good, but I was good in one event, I wasn't great. And so, the, the offer I got was really, really small. Um, but we took it because it was the only offer I had. And, you know, Sacramento State being a state school wasn't that expensive, at least for college, you know, standards. So we took it and we said, fine, that's cool. But as I got really, you know, a lot better in those two years there, we looked around and even my coaches said, hey, I mean, you, you're, you're a lot better. You're worth a lot more money than what you're on here currently. And so... At first, I, I even made the decision to go in and talk to him. But when he kind of, what it seemed like was my coach was trying to do was, my head coach anyway, was trying to push it, the decision off just, just to kind of make sure I wait around. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was really just trying to make sure that my recruitment wouldn't be good. So then I just kind of settle for coming back. Um, but you pushed me to go and talk to him and just kind of push the issue of like, no, I, I'm going to need what, what at the time was considered permission to contact letter, which meant that it gave you permission to contact other schools and basically get recruited while you're still at this school. Um, and so, I mean, like you talked about, that could be kind of awkward seeing as how obviously we were in the middle of the season. You know, there was a lot of things going on that it was like, this isn't probably the best time for me, definitely not for him. But it's something that we need to, you know, handle, obviously, because otherwise it won't end well. So there was tension. I guess I just, I think if I would have understood, obviously, if I knew within what I knew now is the same. But if I would have understood how recruiting and track and field worked a lot better, I think I would have had more of an understanding of really what was necessary. So, I mean, it helped that you pushed me because I don't even think you knew what you was talking about. You just, you was just so adamant about making sure I went and had that discussion, but... Well, I knew before, like with high school, where that window closes. And so if they're recruiting high school and all across the country, you don't want to come when, oh, well, you know, we just handed out that scholarship. Yeah. You at least wanted to give yourself the opportunity to be uh, recognized and, you know, um, at least looked at or considered, you know, at the forefront, you know, not afterwards and hopefully that we have some money available. And so that was the thing that I was pushing. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I thought that you deserved more. And, um, you know, that's why I, you know, pushed the issue for you to go in and talk to him, you know, when I did. So, um, so yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So this yeah. last time around, this was obviously once again, like my third time. So I think I was kind of an expert this time around, but it was, 
obviously extremely different because this past time around was in what March or April of this year, which was what the height of the pandemic. So there were so many things up in the air about next year, the eligibility, um, because I was a senior, so I technically was supposed to be done, but because they canceled the season, they gave us another year of eligibility. But there was questions up in the air whether they'd give us the indoor season back, uh, whether, you know, it, it was just a lot going on. They didn't know what the scholarship allotment would be. Would they increase it? Would they keep it the same? Would you be able to get more money for your seniors? So there were so many things up in the air that as I'm reaching out to schools to see, hey, you know, I'd like to be a part of your program. They're like, yeah, I think that would be great. But we don't know what things are going to look like in the next six months for us. So I think that's where a lot of, you know, the difficulties came in. But, you know, did a good job of, I guess, making sure to stay on top of that. And then as things, as we were updated from the NCAA and, and from, you know, I guess the authorities within college athletics about what the circumstances will be in the coming year, we we're just real adamant about communicating with those coaches. And so obviously the, the whittled down the list and um, Kansas State offered me a great offer and we took that. We took that one this time around. And so this is where I'll be doing my final year of college track and field. So how do you think that experience in the recruitment process, being at now three universities um, where you're competing will help you in your endeavors to go into sports management and sports business? Yeah, something you talked about while I was getting recruited, while I was having those, I guess, uncomfortable conversations was that, hey, if you want to be, you know, a sports agent or work with a franchise or anything in that realm, these are conversations you're going to have to have constantly. You're going to have to, you know, tell somebody, hey, we don't like that contract offer. We're going to need something else or, you know, whatever it may be. These conversations are what you're going to have to do. So realistically, get used to it. You know what I mean? And so that was something that was tough to understand at the time. And I think what I tried to explain to you, but I mean, I get what you were saying and you were right at the end of the day, but at the time I was just thinking it's more difficult in my mind when it's your life, you know what I'm saying? I think, and it sounds weird, but in a way it's easier for me to say, no, nah, we don't like that contract offer when it's somebody else's contract offer. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, it's like, I'm the one on the line. If I don't take this or if things don't work out, I'm going to be the one that's just stuck. So I think it was more difficult to have those conversations, but it definitely makes it easier, like you said, going into what I want to go into, to have had gone through those experiences more than one time now, so. Right, you know, you talked about, you know, how COVID-19 has impacted, you know, the, the track season as well as, you know, college athletics and sports overall. Yeah. Um, and moving into this upcoming season, uh, I've been doing some reading and just kind of following, you know, kind of what's happening with the decisions that are being made to postpone the football season and other sports. Some sports have been canceled altogether yeah. as a result of the economics of college athletics. So give me some insight on the impact of college sports, not only for the university, but just the surrounding areas and the revenue that's created and um, how that's uh, divvied up and how it's anticipated, you know, to help some of these communities function. Yeah, having gone to three different schools, I've seen obviously three different areas and how college athletics and the college in general affects the town around it. Sacramento State is in, you know, California's capital of Sacramento. It's kind of an established city. So the university, I wouldn't say wasn't a big part of the city, but realistically, 
it wasn't a big part of the city. You you had a lot of other things going on, you know, in downtown Sacramento. You had professional sports teams. Particularly college sports there, or college yeah. athletics, yeah. Yeah, so when I was in Sacramento, I don't think it was, I got much of that feel of like, oh, this university and its athletics really, really affect the town around it. And then a, a major switch coming, going out to Purdue, which is in West Lafayette, Indiana, an hour outside of Indianapolis. I mean, we saw it as we were driving in on my recruiting trip. There isn't much out there once you get, you know, outside of Indianapolis and then on the drive from there to West Lafayette, there's not much. And so, um, those towns are you know, obviously smaller towns in the Midwest. There was no pro sports team in West Lafayette or anything like that. So they're so reliant on the revenue because they really were built around these colleges. These towns were built around these colleges in general. So they rely on the college and the, I guess, resources that it brings from people to capital to all of these things to help the community surrounding it thrive. It's funny because I spent the summer in West Lafayette when school's done realistically and everybody goes home and there's no sports going on during that summer and it's just a ghost town you know what i mean the town it doesn't suffer because they've done you know they know how to manage things because they have the revenue that they had while the kids were there and things but you can just tell that the town is a lot different it's like this is the season where we have to kind of be reliant on what we either made or are hoping to make um and it becomes like i said a ghost town and just a lot of those resources leave realistically so with that being said as these seasons or this football season or whatever may end up being canceled or not played or postponed it has a huge effect on them like i said they rely on that revenue heavily and so i mean even if they play this season just the fact that it's in limbo we're losing those towns are losing money daily you know what i mean because now we're sitting back on our heels like, are we going to play? Are we not? Should I hire this guy to be able to, you know what I mean? There's so many decisions that need to be made beforehand right. before a football season is, 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 you know, played that now they're, they're sitting around not knowing whether to make those decisions. So it has a huge impact on those surrounding cities. Yeah. I, I was reading where, you know, in some instances, I know with Penn state um, and some of the other big 10 schools, as they decided to postpone the season, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in which those cities, areas, and, and the university would not be able to uh, capture um, in revenue because everything is being shut down. Um, that impacts the college as well, as you know, and, and, and we've talked about in the past, where basketball and football are the major revenue generators for colleges and universities. When you think about um, Purdue, uh, and their TV contract, you know, and talking with your coaches and, and the business side of it, where those TV contracts, the school itself, what generates over 70 million just in the TV revenue that doesn't uh, yeah. account for the the games, the ticket sales, all the apparel and what have you. So, And that was that was the biggest difference between a lot of the that's why the power five. I think you saw was way more adamant about trying to play football versus some of the smaller conferences because the Big Ten, the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12, they all have TV networks, Big Ten network, SEC network. And so those TV contracts that they have with those networks are providing them tons and tons of revenue to be able to you know, take care of the student athletes and just do things they need to do and creating revenue. Whereas, you know, take for example, Sacramento State, my old school, there is no Big Sky network. There is no big TV contract that's helping, you know, float their, their, um, 
athletics you know and funding the athletics so for them it's like playing football may cost us if we can't fill up the stadium playing football may cost us more than it than it does generate revenue so what's the point right whereas those bigger bigger uh, conferences that's why you saw them pushing because at the very least like you said that's 70 million dollars they get from the big 10 network or the sec network that can float them and they can they can make some they can generate some revenue based off of that so uh yeah, so that's going to be uh, interesting to watch, um, not only with the collegiate athletes, athletics, but the professional sports, and begin to realize how entrenched we are in this country around sports, and how much a business sports is, and how much revenue is being generated. Um, I think I read something where I, I want to say college football generates about $4 billion annually. Four, so college athletics in general is a $4 billion okay. industry. $2 billion is, is for football itself. Another $1.5 billion is considered to be around basketball. Um, and then the other half billion, $500 million is left for all the other sports combined. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, college football in this country is a $2 billion industry. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money lot. in limbo right now, realistically, that we don't know what's going to happen to it. That affects, like we said, those small towns and even big cities. You know, L.A. itself, USC, UCLA, I mean, it's not a, it's not the, you know, going to make or break a city like Los Angeles, but that's, that affects a lot of people within the city. You got restaurants that are being, you know, filled and packed during the games in the season. You have hotels, so you have uh, an, an, a multiplier effect in terms of what happens when these games come in. The camera crews, so all those things are really, really um, huge. You know, yeah. to kind of switch a little bit and to go into, you know, a slightly different um, area of college sports. Um, one of the things um, I see and the change over the last few years, specifically with the athletes. I know when I was uh, in college, we had protests. We were marching at the administrative building, meeting with the presidents because we had certain demands. Uh, I was at a smaller school. so probably didn't have the same issues in the situation as a UCLA or SC or, you know, some of the bigger schools. But, you know, we had a one of our starting linebackers living out of his car. My my roommate and I, we called a meeting because we were sitting in the dark because we couldn't pay our light bill. And so we started looking and asking questions and said, are we the only ones who are living like this? And we said, well, let's, let's check the school or let's check the team. So we called some of our teammates to a meeting and we start asking these questions and everybody kind of was like, yeah, you know, I ain't living good either. You know, my situation is bad. I'm partially eating. You know, I find a place to stay when I can. And so long story short, you know, we said, well, we need to do something. You know, if we got athletic directors and coaches getting, you know, five and six figure contracts to coach and uh, do their jobs, we ought to at least be treated in a humane fashion. And so we started that process of uh, trying to get those things, uh, food, as far as adequate, um, um, what do you call that? Meal, meals, uh, eating table, uh, athletic director. And we wanted coaches that looked like us and represented us and people that we could relate to. Um, but moving forward, um, I see where now that fight for athletes to be treated better is one, but two, to actually get paid for their likeness. Um, for so many years, the university has taken the likeness of these athletes and made millions of dollars. 
and you look down five, 10 years down the road and some of these athletes are homeless or you know not living very well or broke. And so I'm glad to see that take place and that it's starting to happen. What are your thoughts on it and how do you think this can um, impact student athletes in the future? I think it's huge and I think of a specific story um, something I was reading a long, long, long time ago, but Reggie Bush at USC, right? USC's education, because that's that's the big argument is, hey, you know, you're getting a world class education for free if you're on a full ride scholarship. And, you know, obviously education is invaluable. I understand that. But they do put a value on it. At the end of the day, USC charges, let's say, around fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year for their tuition and all of their fees and everything. So take a four year education there, you're looking at around 200 and if you're 60,000, $240,000 a year. The reality of the situation is someone like Reggie Bush created way more revenue, generated way more revenue for USC than $260,000. And so there's obviously a huge disparity there. So this man at the very least, I feel should be able to make money off of his own image and likeness if that is possible. It doesn't, I, I mean, Splitting the revenue with these athletes is something that I think should happen, but at the very least, they should be able to go out into the community surrounding and say, hey, can I make some money off of the work that I've done, off of the accomplishments and the, the work I do every day on the field, right. just like a professional athlete. And that's the disparity is that they consider student athletes as amateurs, but the way, as we talked about, it's a $2 billion industry. That's not amateur athletics anymore. That's 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 professional because there's money involved. So. Right. I definitely feel like the, the, the image and likeness rule change is the first step. Um, but I do believe there needs to also be a revenue share between the universities and the athletes. So putting on now your sports management hat or business or sports hat, what would you tell an incoming collegiate athlete um, who's highly recruited, highly touted, you know, what to do? What would be some of the first steps you would tell them to take in order to make sure that they are maximizing their potential and generating revenue. Well, are we talking about, is it because obviously there's a huge disparity between a football player, a basketball player, and you know, say a track athlete like myself or any other sport? Well, take one, say basketball. Okay, and is this assuming, one more question, is this assuming that the rule has changed about the image and likeness or are we still under the current rules? The, when the rule has changed to um, the, the image and likeness and they're able okay. to benefit from it. Uh, I mean, I guess obviously once that rule officially changes, I'd have to understand all of the complexities and the, you know, the technicalities within it. But I think the biggest thing that you tell somebody like that is in the recruitment and, and you want to catch this in the recruitment process would be to make sure you're going to a school in an area that's going to allow you to benefit off of that rule change. Right. I think of someone at Purdue, um, who is a great athlete, Rondell Moore, he was, uh, a wide receiver for us for the past two years, I believe. And so he's decided to opt out of this season and go to try to train to go to the NFL. But I'm thinking if he was a kid coming in under this new rule change, he could benefit greatly. So my advice for him would be, well, first of all, I think, and, and it's just, it's so, it's so tough because obviously we got to see how this shakes out. But I think one question I have is how involved is the coaching staff in those, not discussions, but necessarily, but, the I guess the transition in terms of hey we're going to set you up with this type of I guess sponsorship 
where you can use your image or likeness to make money with this business or with this business, how involved are they in that? And so obviously if a school like that, if you got somebody who like Nick Saban is going to be vouching for you and he's going to get you some, Hey man, that might be where you want to go. But another thing is you got to consider is, Hey, are you going to be the star at Alabama? And one thing that's what we talked about with college athletics and this rule change is I think that can help some of the parity within college athletics and college football specifically, because now, Hey, I, I may benefit more as opposed to going to Alabama and being just another guy because Alabama recruits so many great athletes. I may be able to go to, let's say an HBCU and be the man. And there's 10 businesses in that town lining up to, you know, give me a sponsorship, wants me to do a commercial for them because I'm the biggest recruit they've had in 10, 15 years. I think that that even some of the, the some of the playing field, and I think that's something that if I was to be a if I was to be advising an up and coming athlete getting recruited right now with this rule change, that's something that I think they definitely have to consider. Hmm. That's 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 interesting. I think it's going to be interesting to watch how this shakes out um, over the next few years because obviously it's something new, and I can see the that process, and it already has crept into high school and even grade school where these athletes are being recruited, being watched very carefully. So um, so it's going to be interesting to watch. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how it shakes out um, and hopefully that these athletes are getting proper um, direction and instructions on how to benefit from their likenesses images. Yeah. And it's, it's crucial because in the past, I think, it's funny because the, the horror story that they try to put out there for why they shouldn't be paid is you have the kid that was a first round draft pick. He skipped his last, you know, however many years of college, he got his first round draft pick, blew all his money, and now he's broke with no college degree. Well, I think of the opposite horror story of the kid who said, you know what, I'm gonna come back for my final year of college, get my degree, and he blows out his knee in college and never gets to go to the, the NFL or what have you. And now, yes, does he have a degree? And that's invaluable course but me personally would I rather be able to have a millions of dollars in contract money that hey I maybe I didn't have the career I didn't want but I at least got this one contract that I had or a college degree and it's tough because like I said a college degree is invaluable but I mean if you're smart and I know this is a lot of people may not do this or may not consider this but if you're smart you take that money you set aside the money to go back to school if that situation ever arises or if you want to do that you know in the meantime and now you're realistically setting up and creating generational wealth all because you skipped your last year of college. So there, there's a horror story that they try to portray and why kids shouldn't be able to go pro so early. But I think there's a whole other one for why kids should be able to get the money while it's there. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I was always told um, coming up to use the system. Don't allow it to use you. So you knowing you're going to a school and the likelihood of you going professional from the school that you're at, pretty slim. So you wanna make sure you take advantage of getting the education, getting access to everything you need. And more importantly, what I found with college is the networks that you establish. Yeah. And so using those networks, so when you're done, you have access to people and resources that can give you opportunities in your career, whatever you decide to do from that. So um, I think it's one of those things that we have to really continue to, to push. And each situation is, is different. And it's a case by case, depending on the athletes or that students, um, you know, 
situation and uh, individual needs. So, um, so yeah. So um, with the college athletics, it's important to make the decisions based on you and your family and what is going to be in your best interest. Yeah, definitely. I mean, going back to your point about, like you said, establishing a network and using those connections that you may you know, need later down the road, I think it's important and crucial to be able to, because you're a student athlete, I think a lot of people are going to want to work with you. I've had, I was an intern at the John Purdue Club at Purdue, which is the uh, fundraising or the development office for Purdue Athletics. Um, and part of the reason I got the internship was, hey, I mean, you're a student athlete and we're talking, you know, part of what they, mainly what they do is they talk to donors and try to get them to donate money to be able to fund the athletics department. They said, well, it'd be invaluable to have a student athlete who's benefiting from you know, these donors to be able to go out and share his experiences, speak eloquently to these donors. And so that, that's part of the reason I got the internship over maybe some other kids. But um, I think using the fact that you are, like you, like you said, it, the, I guess the term or the, uh, the mantra we use now is play the game, don't let the game play you. Um, use that, right. that title, use that, that platform you have to try to set yourself up from later down the road. Cause like you said, I mean, 99% of us ain't going pro. <laughs> yeah, you have a small window of opportunity in which you have to really make that impact. And you have that, like to say, 15 minutes of fame. And you have to be able to ride that wave, make smart decisions to set yourself up for future uh, endeavors and opportunities. Um, because, you know, you got someone who's riding high and then two or three years from now, you got somebody else. And so the careers of college athletes and professional athletes are very short. And so you have to make the most of those opportunities um, as you move forward. And that's for the, I guess, the average college athlete. I think it's different. It's a different mindset for guys who are, you know, obviously once in a generation talent or, you know, I guess those surefire pro guys. Right. So I think of a guy like Zion Williamson, who was at 16 years old, they probably would have drafted him in the first round. He was just that spectacular as an athlete and that explosive. And so the rules say that, hey, you have to be 19 to get drafted and have a done of your college or at least a year post high school, some type of, you know, I don't know, basketball or whatever. And so looking at it for him, it was like, I mean, realistically, he could be in the third year of a contract right now if those rules didn't, you know, not allow him to not get drafted. And so for him, it's got to be like, man, I'm, I'm almost losing out on some of my window because we talk about such a small frame of time that you can be a, a top tier athlete in, in, in the world. I, I would imagine for somebody like that, it's got to feel like you're almost your, your, your clock is ticking. And because of some of these rules that these institutions have put in place, you're losing. And that that sucks to me. So yeah. it's a very go ahead. Yeah, it's one of those things where the rules that were set up, particularly for basketball and football, I understand football to a degree, because when you go into the NFL from college, you're playing with grown men yeah. and, and coming out of high school, you know, it's, it's very crazy. few people who can do that. But I understand the money side of it, the business side of it, because you have golf, you have baseball, you have even track and field. Just about every other sport you can go uh, professional without ever stepping a foot on a college campus. Mm -hmm. The only two sports where you can't do that is basketball and football at this point. Basketball, in the past, you were able to do that. Very few people had the skills to, but um, there were a few who were able to. But I think that new rule or the rule they recently put in place, what, how many years ago, seven to 10 years ago, uh, was really to capture that revenue. And I think now with the athletes 
being able to understand the business side or looking at the business side a little more intently and getting the support, it's putting the pressure on the NCAA to say, hey, y'all need to step up to the plate yeah. and we need to come into the 21st century. Um, yeah. Else, you're going to have people circumventing college, particularly basketball, like some of these things that are happening with, um, what's my man, Rich Paul, and Rich some Paul, of the yeah. athletes that he's been working with, you know, getting them in million-dollar internships opposed to going to college. They're getting ready. They're preparing their training with some of the best trainers and getting ready for the draft. And at the same time, they're getting access and exposure to, I guess, some of the business side, but even more importantly, the revenue that they're generating by bypassing college or going overseas or what have you. So um, I think the NCAA is understanding that a little clearer. I think they need to understand how to make that transition so that the college game doesn't suffer. Because I like the college sports. I like college basketball. Um, but as you can see over the last several years, it suffered with the one and done because, you know, these gifted athletes, you know, I can go and make X amount of millions of dollars and then go to class, um, which is not a problem, but I'm living in a dorm or I'm living in a way that is not really yeah. to where I can be living, or the way I can be living with, you know, these contracts that are being offered and generated. And that's one thing that I understood, and I think a lot of people understood with this image and likeness rule, it wasn't out of the kindness of the NCAA's heart, it's a survival tactic. They understand that a lot of athletes are, like you said, gonna circumvent the college game because it's becoming unnecessary. I mean, you look at this year in high school basketball recruiting, you have three of the top five recruits you know, in high school going to the G League, making half a million dollars in a year, and not going to, that's that's NCAA losing out on, you know, some of the top guys coming out of high school. So at the very least, they had, they looked at it, they looked at the situation and they said, these kids got to be able to make something off of their own image and likeness. Otherwise there is, there with these other options that are coming available, there's no point. There would be no right. point. Because like I said, out of that half a million dollars, if those kids want to say, you know what, I, I really want to get education, it's important to me and I'm going to need it further down the road, then let me set aside 200K or whatever, however much the money is. To, to be able to get that education down the road or even while they're, you know, doing playing sports and stuff like that. But being a college athlete, if these options are available, it's unnecessary. Yeah. Well, I think that's uh, a good conversation um, as it relates to, you know, college sports, the business is college sports and its impact on, you know, surrounding areas and the universities in particular. So um, any last comments? I think that's it, man. Like I said, hey, play the game. Don't let the game play you. <laughs> All right. Well, with that being said, peace. All right. That'll wrap up today's episode. Glad we could take a moment to put you up on game. We post a new podcast every Sunday morning. Now you know. Peace.